All right, it is so great to be with you here again this morning. My name is Tim Cole, and I work with Waypoint Church Partners, which is one of the missions that you all support at this church. So thank you for being a partner with us. Uh, uh, For so many years, Waypoint uh, has existed for almost 80 years, and we, uh, in the last 30 years, we've started 45 churches around the Mid-Atlantic region, and so you've helped us to start those churches. Uh, Thank you very much, Uh, and they're really exciting to start new churches. You're going to be helping us to start four new churches in 2021, Uh, two in North Carolina, one in Virginia, one in Maryland. One starts in two weeks in the Charlotte area. So thank you for your partnership that helps us do what we do. And it's not just about starting new churches, but it's about about starting great new churches that uh, reach new people for Christ. And one of the metrics that we have for that, of course, is the number of conversions that we see. And so we're really uh, proud that we're not just uh, shifting the saints or shuffling the sheep if you know what I mean, Uh, but we're reaching new people for Christ. And in the last four years, those churches that you've helped us to start have baptized more than 2,000 people. And uh, including last year during COVID, that that number's included in there. So thanks for being a part of that and partnering with us to to see great new churches started all across the Mid-Atlantic region. And so uh, today, I'm very uh, thankful that I get a chance to give Steve and Lori a, a weekend off and to get to come share a little bit about Uh, your heritage, where this church came from, and those churches that you're helping us start, what's the deal with them? And so I want to talk about that, particularly for those of you that are online. I want to make sure I recognize you and glad that you're with us here, at least virtually this morning, and and, uh, to to take the time to be together one way or the other. And so this lesson this morning, I think, is particularly helpful for people uh, in each church that I go to that grew up in a different church background, whether you're Presbyterian or Methodist or Catholic or uh, a Baptist, and you better understand the history of that church that you grew up in, and it kind of fills in the blanks and, uh, and makes connections along the way. And so what I want to do for the next 30 minutes is to cover 2,000 years of church history. Are you ready for that? In 30 minutes, we're going we're gonna to really hit it. And what I want to do is I want to create a visual timeline here across the front of the stage uh, using some members of your church that volunteered, not knowing exactly what they were getting into, who are going to come here and represent a different person across the church history type. Uh, timeline. And so if you don't have your sign, if you volunteer and don't have your sign, your prop with you, not, now would be a good time to, to get that. And, uh, but before we do that, what I want to do is set up a really key verse uh, to, to begin with. This passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 16 that starts in verse 13. So if you've got your Bibles with you, whether a physical old school Bible, like with paper, uh, or uh, whether that's uh, on, uh, online, uh, if you want to go to Matthew chapter 16, and in verse 13, uh, Jesus was with his disciples and he asked them, who do people say the son of man is? And they replied, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Or others say Elijah, one of the prophets, or Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Then Jesus stopped and he looked him in the eyes and he said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And I think that's a critical question for all of us to answer. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? What's your answer? And that's when Simon Peter piped up and he said, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one in the Old Testament, the son of the living God. And we call that statement that Peter made the great, the good confession. And so Jesus, recognizing that, says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but from my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you that you, Peter, and this is the nickname that Jesus gives Simon, Petros, the word rock. It's kind of like the size of a a, a tennis ball, maybe. He says, and on this rock, Petra, 
Petras, Petra, on this rock that what you just said, I'm going to build my church. And so that word Petra is like a big giant boulder, maybe the size of this room even. So he says, little pebble, uh, upon that big thing that you just said, I'm going to build a church and I'm going to give you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom, uh, to the kingdom of heaven. And so uh, Jesus is telling Peter that based on that big statement that he just made, that he's going to build the church. And he's going to give Peter the keys to, that, to the kingdom, and he's going to open up the kingdom of God to all of humankind. And Peter does this just 50 days after Jesus ascended back up into heaven, in just seven weeks. And uh, when we see that Peter is preaching his first sermon, the first sermon of the church on the day of Pentecost. And so would you welcome warmly to the stage this morning, Simon Peter, that we're going to put right here on, where's Simon Peter? Come on up, Simon Peter. Do we lose Simon Peter? Come on up, Simon Peter. All right, warmly welcome Simon Peter. Right here, stand right here for us once you've got your robe on. There we go. So Simon Peter's going to get organized there. And you may know the story. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And so on the day of Pentecost, which penta means 50, and so it's 50 days after the big festival of the Passover, there's another festival called Pentecost. And Jesus was crucified at, at Passover. So 50 days later at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down on the believers in a very powerful way. And the disciples were speaking in tongues and in human languages that no one that they had never studied before. And they go out into the temple courts where tens of thousands of people had gathered for this big festival called Pentecost. And the disciples started preaching to them just 50 days after Jesus had ascended back up into heaven. And Peter's first sermon is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. And Peter says, Jesus is the Messiah in the Old Testament. That's the good news. The bad news is you crucified him. The good news is he rose from the dead and now he's in heaven and he's calling us to repent. And the Bible records that uh, the people heard this, this message of Simon Peter and they were cut to the heart. They were convicted and they said to Peter, what should we do? What should we do to be saved? And so the Acts chapter two, verse 38 records what Peter replies. So what does he say? Stand right there, face this way. And Peter said, repent and be baptized. All right. That's with, even with a little accent right there. Very good. So, uh, so Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, go ahead and stand out on the floor a little bit. We're going to have six people up here. Right there. There, thank you, Peter. Give her a hand if you want to. She's, she's great. Now, Peter, I know this was a long time ago for you, but can you, do you happen to remember how many people were baptized that day at Pentecost? For some old people can't remember details 2,000 years later. It was 3,000 people were baptized on the first day of the church. And it's an amazing story that we read about God's mercy and grace being poured out on humankind. The church was born on 30 AD. The kingdom of heaven is open to mankind. And Peter ushered it in on that day about 30 AD. Now, for the next 300 years or so, the church inexplicably grew in spite of intense persecution by the Roman government. Uh, Throughout that whole period, for 300 years, the church was under persecution, and the intensity of that persecution would vary depending on who the particular emperor was, uh, yet it would continue to grow and blossom uh, because even though it was never in favor with the government. But then a very dramatic moment happened in uh, 313 A.D., the church went from being a persecuted 
uh, church, a persecuted organization, to a very powerful religion under the leadership of this dude named Constantine. And so would you welcome to the stage warmly this morning, Constantine, uh, to set the stage for who will become the Roman Empire. So Constantine's going to come, stand right here. Thank you, Constantine. Now, he's going to become the emperor, uh, but he's not quite the emperor yet at this moment. He's leading a faction of the army as a general, and uh, the Roman Empire is in the midst of a civil war, which Constantine is going to win uh, the civil war and become emperor. But, but uh, close to the time, he finally gains ultimate power. On the night before a very important battle, a historical battle called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. We've got a photo of a famous painting about this, this battle uh, right here. And Constantine said that during the night, he saw a vision in the sky, a vision that he says was of the sun and of the cross. Now, Constantine knew a little bit about the Christian God. And uh, Christianity was not in favor with the Roman Empire for sure because the Romans had lots of gods and Christianity said there's only one God. And so they didn't like Christianity at all because of that. The Romans thought that that was intolerant and bigoted. Does that sound familiar? So they didn't like Christianity. But Constantine did know a little bit about the Christian God. And so he saw this vision in the sky and he heard this voice. And he said that the voice was the voice of God. And so would you welcome to the stage right now, right behind Constantine, the voice of God. All right. Voice of God is female. My, the voice of God often sounds like my wife. I don't know how that often works out. Uh, but uh, so we've got the voice of God. So Constantine hears this voice of God in this vision in the middle of the night. And he said that the voice said. In this sign. All right, in this sign, conquer. Thank you. Constantine uh, took this to mean that he was supposed to go out and conquer in the name of the Christian God. And so he put the symbol of Christianity, which we've got a picture of here, on his shields and on his standards. And, uh, and we've got this picture, and it's the, it, it looks kind of odd, but in Greek, it's the first two letters of the name of Christ. It's an X, which is a K, and a P, which actually is an R in Greek, R. Christ. Uh, and it doesn't look like that. Uh, so you've got the, uh, Christ's name. And he put this on the banners and the shields, and they went out and they started winning battles in the name of Christ. And so when he eventually did become emperor, Constantine made Christianity the state religion. So Christianity basically goes from being a persecuted religion to a powerful religion, basically overnight. Now, the good thing about this is that everyone was hearing about Christ. It's a whole lot easier to spread the gospel when it's not illegal to be a Christian. When you're not getting shot at as a preacher, it's a whole lot easier for Christianity to spread. The bad news is, though, however, is that it really waters down the level of holiness and conviction in the church. Everyone is basically going to church because you have to. It's expected. I mean, basically, it's by law, you've got to be a Christian. And so everyone is a Christian, but for most people, it's in name only. And so as a result, over the next few hundred years on the timeline here, the church devolves into a powerful but political entity, primary, primarily political. It created massive corruption in the church. And the apex of this power happened in 800 AD. And so would you please welcome to the stage right here, Pope Leo III. Here he comes. With the... So Pope Leo was coronated Pope in 795 AD. 
But you say, wait a minute, where, do we, where did popes co- come from? Well, let's go back in the timeline, all right? So in the early part of the church down there, every church was basically led, or it's autonomous, led by elders, local leaders uh, and elders. But in the Greek word, the word for bishop and elder is basically the same word. And uh, so these bishops or elders would lead their church. And you could see how over time, uh, the guy who did most of the preaching or teaching at a particular church would be ca- start to be called the elder or the bishop. And every town typically only had one church. So you can imagine how influential the elder of the one church in town started to become. And then they started going multi-site. They started planting new churches in the surrounding villages around their town. And so the bishop is now overseeing not only one church, but kind of several churches in the area. And uh, you can see how organization and hierarchy had to start to begin to develop. And you come to this point in history here where now you have the Roman church. Rome was the most significant, influential, political uh, city in the, in the region. And so you can imagine how influential and powerful the elder or the bishop of Rome would become. And so um, he began to be called, even from very early times, the bishop among bishops. Not, not quite pope yet, uh, but about this time, about 500 AD, between here and here, the Roman Empire fell. And uh, when that happens, it created a strange period in world history. There's not a lot of political structure in the West because the Roman Empire is now gone. And so you have the Goths and the Visigoths, the the serfs and the lords. You have little fiefdoms where every town is kind of its own little uh, reality. And there isn't very much governmental structure at all. And oftentimes the church was the only organized entity in a town. And people would look to the church, and as a result, the elder or the bishop for any kind of leadership for their town. And if you lived in a town and there was an an army coming to attack you, you'd look to the church, and particularly the elder, uh, to gather an army to defend your city. He was the only guy in town with any kind of official uh, power and authority for the town, politically. And so you can see how influential the bishops were becoming in every town. But the bishop of Rome, about this time... Uh, just before 795, starts calling himself Pope or Papa, Father. And he takes on this title as the head of the church, being the bishop or the elder of the most influential church in the region. And he becomes a very powerful person. So we fast forward now all the way from 500 to 800 AD. And at this point in history, the, the Muslims are starting to encroach on the West. Do you remember a few, several years ago when ISIS was in its full power and it was beginning to really take over a lot of territory and you, we would watch the map and it seemed like they were taking over more and more territory and we thought, how, how bad is this going to get? Well, imagine living back in 795, back in the West, uh, in Rome, perhaps, and you hear that the Muslims are taking over territory and they're closing in on the West from the East. And they're... And, uh, Every town that they come into, they forced everyone to to convert to to, uh, Islam or die. And so a lot of really bad things are happening for the church. And there's some tough stuff happening. And there's no really organized government in the West to to take care of it. And there are just these fiefdoms. And everyone's saying to the church leaders, we've got to do something. What are we going to do? Well, enter Pope Leo, all right? Uh, And he's in Italy. And there was one other leader, actually, that kind of gained power at this time. And his name was Charlemagne king of the Franks of what would become France. And he was beginning to gain some power there in France. And so Leo started to think to himself, 
maybe there's a way that I could unite Italy, Rome, and France together and create enough power to ward off the Muslims and to establish the Roman Empire again like back in the good old days. And so in a very dramatic moment, in 800 AD, Charlemagne comes from France to worship in Rome on Christmas Day. And so would you please warmly welcome to the stage Charlemagne, King of the Franks. All right, if you'll stand behind Pope Leo right here. There you go, thank you. Go ahead and step up on the stage. There you go, you're going to be right behind him. So with much fanfare, Charlemagne and his whole entourage march all the way to Rome from France on Christmas Day, and they worship in St. Peter's Basilica. And then with much pomp and circumstance, Pope Leo uh, III crowns Charlemagne the emperor of Rome that day, uniting Italy, Rome, and France, creating what we now call the Holy Roman Empire. And so I don't know if he actually said these exact words, but in essence, Pope Leo was saying, I am the Pope, you are the king. There you go. All right. And so can you understand what kind of power the church took on this day? All right. That we have the Pope determining and deciding who the emperor is going to be. That's an, an incredible amount of power that the church took on that day politically. And so this created, unfortunately, a lot more corruption in the church. We call this era, from this point forward, um, we call it the Dark Ages. And it was a very spiritually dark time. And there's a couple of reasons why we call it the Dark Ages. One, it was really dark because of this political vacuum. It created a power need in their culture, and the church was the only thing that could fulfill that need. And when the church had this power, a lot of evil people gravitated towards leadership in the church. And you can have really ungodly guys becoming pope in this era, historically, doing a lot of really bad things in the name of the church. And the reason they wanted to gravitate towards that leadership was not because of any spiritual calling, but because of the political power. And the other thing that was going on at this moment was biblical illiteracy. That it was really rampant at this time. Illiteracy was a huge problem, primarily because the, uh, that there was no printing press yet. And all the Bibles were hand-copied. They were typically translated only into Latin, which was the original language of the Roman church. And they likely weren't even translated into the language of your local town. And so people weren't reading their Bible. They were just listening to whatever the leaders of their church told them, believing that it was the truth, even though what they were saying often was very far from God's word. And this problem reached its apex in about 1500 A.D. And there were two major dynamics that set the stage for significant reform in the church. One, of course, was the invention of the Gutenberg press, uh, the, the printing press in the middle 1400s. For the first time, people are now reading the Bible on their own. And they're saying, wait a minute, that's not what my preacher has been saying all along. Uh, What's going on? And they started realizing that there were many things going on in the church that were not according to God's word. The other dynamic that set the stage for major reform at this time was a certain doctrine which the church introduced that was so far away from scripture that it was obvious that reform needed to happen. And it was the doctrine of indulgences. Have you ever heard of the doctrine of, the doctrine of indulgences? Basically what this taught was if you give the church enough money you can do whatever you want. 
If you give the church enough money, you can indulge yourself. And one of, one of the ways this was expressed, they would say that if you give the church enough money, we'll make sure that your relative's soul is uh, freed out of purgatory. In other words, you can buy your grandma out of purgatory. And so this makes a whole lot of sense when we understand how they came up with all the cash to build all those monstrous cathedrals during this era. It was because of the doctrine of indulgences, that if you pay the church money, you can do whatever you want. It's a great fundraiser. Now, this was so far out there that good people in the church said that we've got to do something about this. The most prominent of these people was a Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther. And so would you please welcome to the stage Martin Luther, who's going to come stand right here. Where's Martin Luther? There we go. Now, Martin Luther was a Catholic priest, and he starts to read the Bible, and he understands that the all the things that are wrong with the Catholic Church in this era. And he pens this lengthy paper, a manifesto, with 95 reasons he thinks the church needs to reform, 95 theses. And he hammers this manifesto to the front door of his church in Wittenberg, Germany. And, uh, and so Martin Luther, would you hold up your, your hammer, and I want you to say 95 reasons. 95 reasons. All right, now... Now, you've got to say it really loud. Now, come on. You've got a mask on. There you go. 95 reasons. There you go. All right. The 95 reasons, 95 theses why the church needs to reform. That's many, how many things he discovered were, were horribly wrong with the church. Now, it sounds, sounds kind of funny that he would nail it to the front door of the church, uh, but that was kind of like posting it to a billboard of the day, that day, or you'd take out a full-page ad in the newspaper or a, a television commercial on Super Bowl Sunday. It's the way that you would really publish your important thoughts. And this is how you would have published this important uh, idea, by nailing it to the front door of the church in the town square for everyone to read. And he hoped that this would, be, that this would begin a reform movement in the church. But instead, some very powerful but not godly men had taken over the church, and they kicked them out. They excommunicated this Catholic priest from the church. And what is a Catholic priest supposed to do when he's no longer allowed to come to church? You've got to remember, there's only one church in every town. And when you get kicked out of the church, what are you going to do? So he started worshiping privately, and over time, some other people started uh, worshiping with him, and uh, eventually... Uh, he started to realize that the church was not this big, organized uh, structure, religion, uh, but it was just those people that uh, you would worship with uh, who were truly lifting up the name of Christ, the Son of the living God. It doesn't matter what the name of the church is on your sign out by the street or what your structure is, these people are the true church. And so he started his own church that we now today call the Lutheran Church. And did any of you or your parents happen to grow up in the Lutheran Church? All right, several of you. This is your history right here. And over the next hundred years after this, uh, many people followed suit, leaving the Catholic Church, starting their own church. And some of them were excommunicated, like Martin Luther. Some of them just got sick of the church not reforming, and so they started their own church. And so now we have many groups who began what we, what we now call the Protestant Reformation. Protestant is the word protest. Reformation means to reform. So it was protesting for, for reform in the church. And there are many groups that were formed out of this era of history. Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, Episcopalians. Basically, in one way or another, all trace their roots back into this era of the Protestant Reformation. 
Now, the great thing about this era is that people finally care about the truth. They're reading their Bible. They care about doctrine. They're trying to get serious about the truth. The bad thing about this, though, is that for basically the first time ever, the church is divided. Throughout this period here, on this side of the stage, uh, walking all the way down the timeline, the church has basically been one church. It's been unified. That's a good thing. But now from this point forward, the church is divided. And in fact, it's so bad that every time you have a doctoral, doctrinal disagreement with someone, you just leave and go start your own church. And, uh, and if you have an argument, you, you start your own denomination. And um, it kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? My favorite example of this is, is this division of the division in the church from this point forward is a Presbyterian denomination in Scotland. It was the Old Light Antiburger Seceder Presbyterian Church. That's how many times in just a couple hundred years the Presbyterian denomination had divided themselves. The Presbyterians had divided, had broken off from the Catholic denomination, and then the Presbyterians had an argument about who could choose the preacher. Did the denomination choose the preacher, or did the church uh, choose the preacher? And the churches that wanted to choose their own preacher were called the seceders, because they were leaving, and other than the denomination saying, we get to choose. And so you've got the seceder Presbyterian denomination, as well as the Presbyterian denomination. Then the seceder Presbyterians eventually had an argument about who, whether or not the local town had any say about who their preacher would be. And back in Scotland, the towns are called burgs, uh, like Pittsburgh or Harrisonburg. And uh, so you had the burgers and the anti-burgers, whether the, church got to, the town got to pick or not. And so you've got the uh, burger seceder Presbyterians and the anti-burger seceder Presbyterian denomination. Then the Antiburger Seceder Presbyterian denomination had an argument over the Westminster Confession about whether you were able to change what it said or not. And there were some old school folks that said, no, let's leave it alone and leave it as is. And they were called the Old Light. And then you had the young folks that said, no, let's, let's change it around a little bit up for vote or whatever. And they were the New Light. So you had the Old Light Antiburger Seceder Presbyterian Church denomination. It's dizzying, isn't it? And uh, so I want to introduce you this morning to a preacher from Scotland who was a preacher in the old line Annenberger Seceder Presbyterian denomination, Thomas Campbell. So warmly welcome Thomas Campbell to the stage this morning. All right. Now, one thing you have to understand about the atmosphere of the churches in those days, as they were being serious about their faith and about the truth, uh, they were being so serious about that that if you didn't agree exactly with what your church believed uh, and its teaching, you were not welcome in that church. Let's say you visited a day and you were not a member of a church. Uh, If you didn't agree with everything that church says, you were not welcome to take communion at that church. Even if you were in a one of the other Presbyterian denominations, you weren't allowed to take communion at that particular Presbyterian church because you were different Presbyterians. And that's how bad it was. There was no fellowship across denominational lines, even within your own heritage. And this fundamentally bothered Thomas Campbell. And in 1798, he had accepted a church, a pulpit, in a little town, Ahori, Ireland. And he opened an academy in the next town over in the town where he lived in Rich Hill that he taught during the week. And he preached in Ahori on Sunday, and he would teach in Rich Hill about three miles away, like like Stannardsville maybe over here. 
And, uh, and so he started making friends in Rich Hill, three miles from his church, that attended an independent Presbyterian church, not an old light Annaberger Seceder Presbyterian church. And so what he started doing is he would preach in his church on Sunday morning, and then he would worship on Sunday night with the independent Presbyterian church. His superiors were ticked off. You weren't allowed to fellowship with people from a different church. And uh, Thomas sensed that this was just not right. And over the next several years, he attempted a couple of times in Scotland to change all this and to bring all the Presbyterian groups back together to be unified. But he failed. He, couldn't just make, he just couldn't make it happen. And it really stressed him out. And so he was visiting his doctor about his stress level even back then. And guess what his doctor prescribed for him? He said, you need to take a long trip to America. That was his prescription, literally. And now this is the late 1700s. America's the new frontier, slower pace of life, fresh air. He said, you need to go spend some time in America. And so he took him up on it. He w- and he moved to America uh, near Pittsburgh. And when he moved here, he could not for the life of him find any other old light Annaberger Seceder Presbyterians to worship with. Now, he did find some other Presbyterians to worship with, uh, but they couldn't find any of themselves either. And so all of a sudden, they were all worshiping together. And Thomas Campbell said, this is exactly what I was hoping for back in Scotland, back home. There are Christians, good people, in other groups, not just mine. And so Thomas Campbell's famous line, uh, he would say all the time, We are not the only Christians. That's right. He would say, we're not the only Christians. In other words, uh, wouldn't it be great if we could fellowship across denominational lines with all those who boldly lift lift up the name of Jesus? Now, he was really worried because his oldest son, Alexander, was a preacher back in Scotland in the Old Light Annaberger Seceder Presbyterian denomination. And uh, Thomas was sure that his son was going to be really upset with him for basically leaving their denomination. And they hadn't talked in a long, long time because he was in America, his son was back in Scotland, and there wasn't an email back then or Zoom or anything like that. And so uh, they hadn't talked in a long time. And eventually, Alexander came to America to visit his dad. And they had this wonderful reunion. And as they talk, Thomas discovers that unbeknownst to him, his son Alexander back in Scotland, a preacher back in Scotland, had come under the conviction and he'd been praying for the exact kind of unity in the church across denominational lines. And so together, they feel like God is leading them to begin a movement in America to unify the church at large. And they, they end up eventually meeting this other preacher in America, a famous preacher uh, from the Second Great Awakening. I don't know if you remember in your history books, the Second Great Awakening in world history, when you read about in the late 1700s. Uh, and so I want to introduce you this morning to one more character. Uh, he's a great preacher from the Second Great Awakening. His name is Barton W. Stone. So Barton W. Stone, would you come to the stage? There we go. Welcome him. Now, Barton W. Stone is a very famous preacher, and he participated in the great camp meeting revivals on the frontier of America, and uh, most notably the Cane Ridge Revival in Kentucky in 1801. And one of the things that was so significant about these great camp meeting revivals, that they're basically like family camp for two, three weeks, covered wagons, is how big they were. They would draw 10 to 20,000 people Uh, for these camp meeting revivals. And uh, so uh, what they had to do is because they didn't have 
microphones and uh, amplification at that point, they would have to get every preacher from the area to work on sermons together, regardless of denomination, and then in the evenings, they would preach sermons in this revival, one preacher on every stump, and that's where the word stumping came from, for everybody that could hear them from within their range. And Barton W. Stone said, wouldn't it be wonderful if this was the way it was every Sunday not just during revival, if we just forgot our denominational distinctions altogether and just called ourselves Christians. And so he ends up meeting Thomas and Alexander Campbell, and they eventually decide to start a movement in America to move people back to the Bible and uh, to get people to just be known as Christians only. And so one of their famous slogans actually goes together when you put the two of them together. So we're going to have Thomas say his line and then Barton W. Stone say his line. And so they said, We are not the only Christians, and we are Christians only. That's right. We're not the only Christians, but we're Christians only. And so... um, In other words, there are good Christians in other groups. You don't have to be part of our group to be a Christian, to go to heaven. But but we're just going to be Christians only, not Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans. And this is where the idea for just being a Christian church came from. So all across the frontier, including here in Virginia, churches began to change the name on their sign out by the street. And whatever their denomination had been before, it simply got changed to Christian church or Church of Christ. And this movement started to, be, started to be called the Stone Campbell Movement. Stone Campbell Movement, okay, is what it got its name. And uh, you can actually go to churches out in the country, here in, in Virginia, and read their history, and their history will say, we used to be Baptist, or we used to be Methodist, or we used to be Presbyterian, or whatever. But during the Stone Campbell Movement in the early 1800s, we changed our name to be a Christian church. And this movement has been also been called the Restoration Movement because it didn't set out to reform the Catholic Church, but to go all the way back to the first century church and restore the Restoration Movement to restore what the church looked like in the first century, not just reform the church uh, at this stage. And so it's called the Restoration Movement. Let's go all the way back to doing the things the way they did back in the New Testament. They said, let's have independent churches, autonomous churches led by elders. Let's say that the Bible's going to be our guide. And we're going to fellowship across denominational lines with anyone who will unashamedly lift up the name of Jesus. And so uh, with this little history lesson, let's go back one last time and have everybody say their line one more time, beginning with Peter. And we're going to go right across to Barton W. Stone. Go ahead. Repent and be baptized. In this divine I am the Pope, you are the King. There we go. 95 reasons. We are not the only Christians. We are Christians only. All right. Everybody give them a hand. You guys can go back to your seats. Thank you very much. So let me wrap this up very quickly. If I could place us on this timeline here in uh, 2020, uh, it would be right here at the end of this line. Your church traces its history through the Restoration Movement. Uh, More than 100 years ago, actually more than 120 years ago, uh, a group of Christian-only type of believers envisioned this kind of church to be started on the north side of Charlottesville. And, And so your church traces its history through the Restoration Movement. And people around the country still celebrate the values and the principles uh, that are happening around the world today that were the same principles and values of Alexander Campbell 
uh, Thomas Campbell and Barton W. Stone. And they're still happening in churches today where the people are going back to the Bible and they're united across denominational lines based on whether or not you're lifting up the name of Jesus. For example, many of you came from a different church background and some certain denomination. And within that denomination, almost every denomination in America, there are two major factions. There are churches that no longer preach the Bible very much and talk about Jesus very much. And then there are churches in that same denomination that are holding up the name of Jesus and faithfully preach God's word. And in these churches that are still preaching the name of Jesus, you, have, you feel more in common with the churches in other denominations that are holding up the name of Jesus than those churches in your own heritage that have quit pre- preaching and teaching the Bible very much right? And so we have come to call this biblical commonality across denominational lines as the evangelical church in America. Because we believe that you're still supposed to do what the Bible says, which is to evangelize and tell people about Jesus. And there are people from all kinds of denominations within evangelical churches. We sing the same worship songs. We listen to the same preachers on the internet. Uh, We attend the same Christian conferences. We visit each other's churches on vacation. Because we believe that God is calling us to be a unified church and to lift up the name of Christ. So you need to know that you are part of an evangelical Christian church that considers itself part of the restoration movement. So I hope that today this will not only help you understand our heritage, but to love what's great about how this church got started. Now to end this lesson, what I want to do is something that I think beautifully illustrates the unity that we have in Christ. It's really simple. On the count of three, I want you to call out the denomination you grew up attending or maybe that your parents grew up attending. Uh, So on the count of three, I'm going to do that. If you grew up attending a Methodist church, you're going to yell out Methodist. If you grew up Lutheran, yell Lutheran. If you grew up Baptist, say Baptist. If you grew up Catholic, say Catholic. If you grew up bouncing around, say bouncing around. If you grew up not going to church at all, say heathen uh, or something like that. All right, on the count of three, are you ready? One, two two, three. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? It's not, it's pretty discordant. There's no unity there. But now on the count of three, what I want you to do is just to say the name of Jesus together. All right? One, two, three. All right. Now we're going to say that again, but I want you to say it now really, really loud. All right? Call out uh, very boldly uh, Jesus, the one that unifies us. One, two, three. Jesus. All right, that's great. Now, one more time, I want, I want you to say that name together, but say it as a whisper, a prayer, remembering all that Jesus has done for us because of his sacrifice on the cross. One, two, three. Jesus told his followers, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And this is our simple goal at this church, to lift up the name of Jesus so that all people would be drawn to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for using the church over all these years in spite of all your failures, all our failures. Thank you what you've done in every group. The Catholic Church, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Baptists, the Lutherans, and even the Christian church. Lord, we're thankful that in all those groups there are people who truly hold to the reality that your word is the guide for life, and we lift up your name, the name of your son, Jesus. 
So we want to thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that you would unite the church today on the truth of your holy word, the truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.